0: Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and return to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 17. For those of you who have turned in questions for our summer question time that we're going to do, answering the questions you've had as we've studied Luke, I appreciate it. A lot of good questions have come in, a lot of tough questions. So I'm excited about that, excited to take the challenge. Um, this was not supposed to be stump the pastor questions. These were supposed to be easy ones, but I'm glad uh, that we have them. And, and uh, so, in a couple of weeks, two more weeks, two two weeks from today, Lord willing, we'll we'll do it. But today, we are looking here at Luke 17. If this is your first Sunday here this morning with us, we are studying the Gospel of Luke, going thought by thought through this wonderful Gospel, and we have left off here at the passage Philip read for us earlier. Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. But uh, before we uh, study it, let me just open our time in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege we have of of being together and learning and growing and worshiping and encourage one another. And uh, thank you for our time in your word. Lord, may it challenge us. May we have, in one sense, the courage to face your words, but also, Lord, may we not only in the course of the challenge feel the sense of your healing hand, that you with grace and mercy shepherd us to conform to the image of Christ. What a joy that is. So, Lord, as we face these words, as we encounter this text together, Lord, I pray that we we just might be more like Christ as a result of the change that comes. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have been studying this section here in, in, in Luke, or this Gospel of Luke, and, and we come to here in chapter 17, 1 through 10, the concluding set of words of this teaching time that Jesus had that, that began when he be, made his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jesus did most of his ministry up north in Galilee, And then when it was time to go to the cross, he began to make his way south. Galilee's at the north of Israel. You you can think of uh, Israel like your thumb. And he was up by your thumbnail, and he's starting to make your way down below your knuckle. So he's making that journey down. As he's making that journey down, he's teaching. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. And starting around Luke chapter 12, we have the teaching that Jesus gave as he was making his way down to Jerusalem. And what we have in, in chapter 17, the first 10 verses, is basically what the, the final piece of teaching that, that Luke records in this, in this traveling segment, his final set of instructions. Now, we've looked at these over the past several weeks, and they have been very intense, everything that he has said. I mean, it's, it's, it's cut me up intensely. It's, it's been really intense. I mean, in fact, just a little summary of what he taught as he made his way down from Jerusalem. I mean, from Galilee to Jerusalem, he he taught his disciples, you got to be all in, right? We we looked at that several times. He kept saying, you're either all in or you're all out. You're either completely in for the kingdom or you're completely outside the kingdom. No middle ground. And he spent a lot of time unpacking what that meant. He also said, hey, if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, you can't live for this world. You have to live for the mission." Your heart can't be drawn to the things of this world and loving the things of this world. You can't love the things of this world in God. You're either all in for the kingdom and you're loving that or you're not. But then he says, okay, but but as you're living for the kingdom, don't worry, God will provide. And so he spent time saying, God will provide for you. He's your provider. Trust him. Don't worry about your provisions. He cares about you. And then he says, now remember this. The temporal... All the temporal blessings you have are meant to serve the eternal. The eternal doesn't serve the temporal. All the stuff that Christ did on the cross wasn't just to get you rich. God provides the resources we have so that we could use them to advance his kingdom. And so the eternal is served by the temporal. And so whatever you've been given is really given so that you can invest into the kingdom. And then he says, "And, and that investment that's going to happen has to happen in the lives of people. We're all about investing into people, caring and loving and investing into those who don't who aren't part of the kingdom to go out and bring them into the kingdom." So he said all of this. This is the essence of his teaching in these five or so chapters that we've looked at. And then we get to his very last section, the very last set of instructions that Luke records. Very practical section. He's talking about relationships. And relationships in the body. And he's going to explain to them, as you do this, as you live for the mission, you're doing it in a community. So how are you going to get along in that community? That's what he's talking about. So this is a very intensely practical, powerful and very challenging passage. It's one of those passages. I'm sure, even when Philip read it, if if you really stop to hear some of the things Jesus said, you, you have those little well, "what about" reactions. You know, well, wait a minute, Jesus, what about this? And well, what about this? And what, what if this? And it comes out when you when you read it. And and, and we'll surface some of those "what abouts" and "what ifs" as we go through it. But it's a very important passage. And in fact, I just want to make kind of three observations about this section. Just to set it up. Then we're just going to dive in. And just kind of just see what happens. But, but the three observations are this. The first thing I just want to focus in on that you don't lose sight of is the nature of this passage. The nature of this passage is very simple. It is about relationships within the body of Christ. Somebody called me this week and asked me a question. The passage in Matthew 18, which is similar to this one, about Going and, and going after someone who sins and all this. Somebody asked me, "Does that apply to non-believers? Should I be doing this with my boss?" And I said, "No, it does not apply to non-believers. This is these are community relationships. This is the stuff that goes on in in our community. So so the nature of this passage is about us. If we really want to put it in, this is about our community. It's about being in the body of Christ. How do we get along with each other? The focus." Of this passage. So that's the nature. It's the body. The focus of this passage. Is your brother. It's kind of similar to the nature. But the focus is specifically this. Your brother and sin. The reality that we exist. In community. In a fallen world. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're going to sin against each other. So the focus is. How do we respond to the fact that we are all in a body together? And I want you to stop and think about something. You could go ahead and like join any group in the world today, right? Like you could you could say, oh, you know, I'm a Blackhawks fan, so I'm gonna go find a bunch of Blackhawks fan. We're gonna watch the Blackhawks game together, and we all have that in common, right? I'm choosing to join something that's similar to my interest. Jesus is saving a whole bunch of people that aren't. Of the people that at times I would choose to watch a Blackhawks game with, I'm thrusted into relationships with people. You're thrust in a relationship with me. You might get around me and think, Man, I would never hang out with Leston. The guy's annoying. He just talks, he doesn't stop. He doesn't know periods, he just comma, semicolon. Words just keep flying out of his mouth. It's get away from me, right? But you have to deal with me, right? <laughs> you have no choice. We're in the body. You see, Jesus put me in here. You can't kick me out. Okay. So how are we going to deal with that? How are we going to deal with that? The focus is, okay, we're all a bunch of people together, and we're sinners. What do we do about this? That's the focus. But there's a third observation I want to make about this passage, is the importance of this passage. There are some very strong words in this passage. He says, boy, if you become a stumbling block to somebody, it's better that you have a thousand pound stone hung around your neck and you cast into the ocean than to face God. That's the implication. Like, you better take this seriously. He says, pay attention to yourself. Like, like there's, there's stern words, powerful words And when we read this, we should stop and say, this is really important stuff. It's very important. And in fact, it's important because this is an issue we will all struggle with. Everything written in this passage has both an ouch and an amen connected to it. I'd love to create a word that has both of those together. Ouch and amen all in one. Because this is what it is. It, it's serious. This is why the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. We can't do this. And yet, there's a very spiritual reality to this because God has given us in him all that we need to do this. So it's an important passage. It's something we have to take seriously. And oftentimes, we don't take it seriously because we just kind of get into relationships and then we can kind of manage in and out of things, based on how we are relating to people. We kind of put the brakes on over here, go over here, pull out, and, 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 and we kind of manage it that way. And Jesus is saying, I want a little bit more than that. I want a lot more than that. And so we're going to learn how to do that. So this final section then is really dealing with our heart. They all have been. And the heart we're to have for one another as we relate to one another. And in fact, I kind of saw this passage just saying, he's dealing with our heart and he's telling us three things. I want you to have a shepherd's heart for one another. I want you to have a forgiving heart for one another. And I want you to have a faithful heart for one another. And that's our outline. A shepherd's heart, forgiving heart, and a faithful heart. Two things that I'd love for you to get out of this. Number one, is that I want you to see Jesus is teaching that the normal Christian life is one of compassion And forgiveness driven by faith. That the normal Christian life is one of compassion for each other. Forgiveness for each other and towards each other. And all of it driven by faith. That's the normal Christian life. And I want you to see that. That this normal Christian life is one of compassion and forgiveness towards others driven by faith. But the second thing I want you to catch. This is a little side point not necessarily the point of the text, but it's a little subsidiary thing we can get. Today, in this culture, it's very easy to uh, just say, well, listen, I don't really need the church, right? I can go online and download the best preachers in the world, and I could go onto YouTube and watch the greatest worship bands ever, and I could do it all right there in my home. And I can listen to 20 sermons on a Sunday morning, and I can listen to all this great music and i don't and then i don't have to deal with people be great be wonderful this passage in a subtle way is going to expose why that's wrong at the very end i'll come back and cycle back to that because there's one thing missing in the bedroom baptist church okay there's one thing missing in that and it's something that's here that we'll see. Maybe you'll catch it at the very end. I'll give you a Bible test and see if you caught it. There's one thing you don't have if you're just doing it all by yourself. That one thing that we need. Okay, but It's not something we want, but it's something that we need. Okay. So let's look at it here. I'll come back to that point at the very end. Let's just first look at the shepherd's heart. Look at these first couple verses. He says, and he, and he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So he's still teaching his disciples. The first thing he says is these temptations are going to come. Which means this. All around the world, everywhere we go, we are always tempted to deny Jesus, to, to not trust in him, to trust in ourselves... That's just surrounding us everywhere. He's saying, they, they come. It's a world we live in. It's a world that's opposed to God. They're everywhere. But he says, but, but woe, cursed, is the one that brings a temptation to these little ones. Now, who's the little ones he's talking about? It's, not, it's probably not children. The word could mean children. But if you think about the context, who's around them? It's Jesus... Pharisees are around them, the disciples, or you know, the 12, and a whole bunch of outcasts. Tax collectors and sick people and lame people and some, probably some Gentiles thrown in, some Samaritans. All these outcasts. And these outcasts are coming to Jesus, and this is what's causing the conflict, right? Because the Pharisees are saying they can't come. They can't be part of the covenant community. They're outcasts. And I believe what Jesus is saying is he's saying, listen, this whole world's filled with temptations to sin, but woe to the one who's going to cause these younger believers, these ones that are just coming in, to stumble. Now the question is, what does he mean by this? Well, let me try to explain to you these words. I don't really like the way the uh, English Standard Version translated this, temptations to sin. Some of the translations have little footnotes by there. And they have the word stumbling block. That's probably a better word, stumbling block, because it's not the word sin, actually. It's the word stumble. It's actually a word, uh, scandalized, right? That word probably sounds familiar to you, the scandal or scandalize. It's what it is. It's actually the word to scandalize. And, and what he's saying is, you know, there's all these temptations to scandalize out there. But woe to the one who becomes uh, a temptation for these people to be scandalized. So now the question is, what does it mean to scandalize someone? It's not actually saying that you're, you're actually causing this person to all of a sudden take a heroin needle and stick it in their arm and get addicted to drugs. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. He's actually talking about something very unique. And let me try to explain it to you with an illustration so that you could see what this word means. When Anna was born, our oldest, this big hospital, and uh, and, and so she's born, and we're spending time with her. And, of course, you know, I sound old back in the day. You know, you had a delivery room, and then the room that you, you stayed in to recover afterwards, right? Not like these parents today that do it all in one nice, fancy room. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> I just feel so old up here when I get to say that. No. Okay, so, so they were moving to the room for Anna, to, to, for Heather to recover, and the nurse says, we're going to take your baby away. We're going to get it cleaned up. We'll bring her back to the room. All right, I have no clue what's supposed to be happening here. So they take the baby away. We go up to the room. Baby never comes back. Anna doesn't come back. So I go out there, and I say, hey, you said you are going to bring Anna back. Could you do that? Oh, yeah, don't worry. Yeah, we'll bring her. All right, I don't know, half hour goes by, no Anna. So I go out there, and I say, hey, uh, kind of wondering where our daughter is, you know, you bring her back, and then she goes, oh, new dad, new dad, you're always worried, new dads are always worried, don't worry, new dad, we got this under control, and I go back to the room, like, well, they got it under control, Heather, I don't know where she is, I have no clue where she is, (laughs) and then about a half hour later, mama's going, Steve, get Anna, you know, like, you got to get her, so I go back out there, and I say, hey, it's been a couple hours, Wondering where our daughter is? Oh, new dad, new dad. You guys, oh, your new dads always worry. Don't worry, new dad. All oh, those dads, you know how they are. They come in. You know, I come back. Yeah, they said they're going to bring her. You know, and uh, Heather's. You know, I don't. know, What three hours? I don't know it was a long time. No clue what's happening. I go back out again. I say, hey, kind of checking up on the Anna thing here. When is she coming? What do I get? New dad, those new dads always worry. And then new dad popped a cork. (laughs) I popped a cork. I'd been up all night, right? These are all, I'm justifying my sin here, right? Was up all night, you know, hadn't slept in over, what, 40 hours. I'm sturdy, sweaty from not showering. And I go, hey, you worked for me. I'm paying your salary here. I'm putting in good money, and since you were for me, you bring me my baby now. Right? Pop. Right? I was a youth pastor then. I could get away with it. She goes, well, actually, here's what happened. Right? All the moms are going, what? Okay. Your daughter swallowed a lot of fluid, and we think she has pneumonia. And I'm like, Would have been nice to have known that. And she goes, well, you're just a new dad, and we don't want to worry you. Now, when I left the hospital, how did I feel about that hospital experience? Right, That right there is scandalizing. Here's what happened. She thought, and she did. I, I'll give it to her. That nurse knew more about parenting, you know, about about taking care of a child. I, I don't even know if I could change her diaper. I mean, I was scared to do that, right? I know I was a new dad. I'm 28 years old. I don't know what's going on. And she she had her own children. She was a delivery nurse. She took care of babies, right? She could probably change five babies at one time and give somebody CPR, right? She's like probably very skilled, without question. She knew more than me. As a result, she took it upon herself to take this position over me, to chastise me, to speak in a condescending tone, to push me away. I know more than you. Just leave this to the experts. Get out of my way. Now that's scandalizing. How would that look in the church? Right? Because when I left there, I was like, man, these hospitals, these nurses, these... Uh, What happened? To scandalize means you push somebody away to the point where they lose faith. They lose faith. You treat them in such a condescending manner that they lose faith. Now, what he's saying is this. There's lots of things out there that are going to push you away from following Jesus, but woe to the people who do it in the church. So the new believer walks in the church and starts talking about a movie they just saw. Bad movie. Not a good movie. And they're talking about, oh, I went and saw this movie. It was great. And the older believer goes, you saw what? How could you call yourself a Christian? Scandalized. Just pushing this person away. Right? Established believer. Studied all his theology. Got it's all worked out you know, knows almost as much as Paul. Got it all worked out. The younger believer comes in and makes some theological statement that's wrong. Wrong, because they're young. They don't know. So they make some statement, flies out of their mouth, and the older believer, the one who knows everything, says, you can't believe that. How do you even call yourself a Christian? If you don't get the ordo salutis right in salvation, there is no way you can be saved. And they just cut at you. It's like, and you're like, whoa, okay, right? That's what he's saying. The scandalizing is is when that younger person comes, and that older nurse says, "New dad. New dad. I am a new dad, but I'm a dad, right? I am a new believer, but I'm a believer. I'm accepted in the fellowship." I'm accepted by Christ's death, not by your standard. So what he's saying is, listen, it is so easy the longer you get in the faith to stand like those Pharisees, and when that tax collector comes in, they say, oh, huh, look at that. What's going on with the church? All these sinners coming in. Look. See, so he's saying, whoa. Whoa. Back off. Be careful. You don't want to be that person that pushes that one away. Because what happens? Somebody comes in and they make, you know, a statement that's just off the charts weird. Right? Happens to me a lot. Somebody comes up, they say off the chart weird statement. And it's like, you know what? Instead of going, how could you believe that? I say, hey, you love God. I'm going to invite you into my life. We're just going to get in the word together. And over time, I'm going to trust that God's word is going to correct that statement. Rather than me pushing you away going, new dad, new dad. Because what do you do? You're scandalizing the person. See, this is why I'm saying it isn't just temptation to sin. It's actually scandalizing. It's pushing the person away because you're coming at them with a maturity that they haven't gotten to yet. Rather than lifting them up in love, you're pushing them down with the weight of what you have. That's why the word scandalize is there. I'm hitting this hard, aren't I? I, mean, I want you to catch it. Very important to catch this. And so this is the issue. And he's saying, I don't want you to have a scandalizing heart towards people... Where everything that you learn puts you at a level where this is where everybody needs to be now. And if somebody comes in and says something crazy, now now I'm not suggesting that we keep people in their ignorance, but what I'm saying is you're not going to get them out of their ignorance by scandalizing. Right? I would have done much better in the hospital if she would have sat me down and said, Your your daughter swallowed some fluid. We think your daughter has pneumonia. We have her on that machine way back. See that child back in that machine in the back room? That's your child, which I didn't know that was my child. I kept looking in the nursery trying to figure out where my child was. Would it have done much better if she would have said, now I know that you're probably scared, but this happens all the time. And she's, her, she's not under any life-threatening situation, right? I, I needed to be shepherded at that moment, not scandalized. So the issue is, do I have a shepherd's heart? What happens, though, is that we can scandalize and not even know it. Roll your eyes. Give that look like, what? Jump down someone's throat. And he's saying, I don't want that. Why? It's better for you to die a gruesome, painful death than to be a scandalizer. That's what he's saying. So that, that, that Jesus makes a pretty strong point here, right? A millstone is about a 1,500-pound stone. He said, I just want you to sink to the bottom of the ocean and drown with your neck broken. That's a better world than it would be the implication to face God because you've scandalized people. New believers have come and you're the reason why they hate the church. You're the reason why they hate the body of Christ. Do you want to be that one? He said, you don't want to be that one. You don't want to be the reason why someone says, I never want to go back to that church again. I never want to go back there again. It's like you don't want to be that one. Woe to you. So first relationship is, God, remove my scandalous heart and give me a shepherd's heart. So that's our prayer, first prayer. God, just remove the scandalous heart. Give me a shepherd's heart. Then he moves us into a forgiving heart. Second part, the forgiving heart. <clears throat> Look at verse 3. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. A couple things said here. First there in verse 3, pay attention to yourself. First thing that he's saying is, I want you to change your view of yourself. Right? I want to change my view of myself. Look at. pay attention to yourself. Why say this? This is kind of connected to the previous statement and then transition us into the next statement. In in looking at this statement, he's acknowledging something. We all struggle with the scandalous heart. So be aware of that. Where is yours? What is your thing? What is it that you look at that makes you roll your eyes? What is it to where suddenly we who love the doctrines of grace are willing to throw it out and go after somebody. You know? What is it? And he's saying, pay attention to yourself. So this is a, a, a moment where he's calling us to look at our own heart, to have that honest reflection. So think through conversations you've had. Think through your opinions about things. Think through how you react and ask yourself, Right. What is the area that makes me react? That makes me roll my eyes or push something away. Somebody comes in and says, "Oh, I love that song," and you go, oh, "That song's horrible. How could they listen to that song? That song has nothing to do with God." You know, somebody comes in and they 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 you know read some book and you go, oh, "That book. How could they read that book?" And that's find that area where you have that reaction, and you always know the reaction. Right? I'll give you the tip about a four dollar tip here. here but it's free here's here's the tip your scandalous heart always begins with a statement that is how could they If you have that reaction how could they listen to that music how could they pick that song how could they read that book how could they listen to that preacher wherever that comes up there's your scandalous heart It's revealing itself. Now the hard part is Jesus is telling people who who in one sense appear to be very mature, right? They've grown to the point where they have very deep convictions. And he's saying, do you understand? You might be really mature. You might have a very developed sense of theology. You might have a very developed sense of the word. But I'm telling you, man, it's better to be tortured than it will be to be a scandalous person. You're going to wish you had a millstone around your neck and you're in the bottom of the ocean. You face God with a scandalous heart. God's our shepherd, man. He shepherds his sheep. Doesn't he not? He shepherds his sheep. If God had a how-could-you theology about him, less than would not be here. <laughs> he shepherds me. He's my good shepherd. And he's saying, listen, I want you to emulate me as a shepherd. You're not a scandalizer. You're a shepherd. So pay attention, which means you have to change the view of yourself to say, I am a scandalizer. And I'm going to look for it. I'm going to be aware of it. Paying attention literally means to kind of heighten your senses. I've used this illustration before, similar kind of words, but I'll, I'll use it again. You're in an airplane. Flight attendant comes up to you and says, Hey, both the pilot and the co-pilot have died. You have to land the plane. Okay. You're now in the cockpit. You're paying attention, right? You put the headphones on, and the control tower person says, hey, there's a red button above your head. Press it. And you're going, okay, I'm looking up. I see a red button. It's next to green one. Is that the right button? Yeah, that's the right one. Okay, I'm going to press it now. Can I press it now? Right? That's how your whole experience would be, landing that airplane, right? You'd be paying attention. That's the same intensity behind that phrase, pay attention. yourself so the key to not being a scandalizer is to quit paying attention to the immaturities around you and to start paying attention to the judgmental spirit within you there's the shift this is the shift i got to change how would that practically look in the church? It would mean that if I walk in the church and I walk by a Sunday school classroom and they're doing something in there, and I might think, ugh, how could they do that? Ah, what am I doing? I'm looking at them. Can't do that. I don't want to walk in here and say, oh, how could this person be doing this? I want to look at myself. God, don't give me a scandalous heart, give me a shepherd's heart. And if you need to use me to help mature someone and move them out of maturity, give me love, compassion, and allow me to wrap my arms around them and bring them through it rather than scandalizing, right? That's the idea. Pay attention to yourself. i got to change my view of myself, which means I'm no longer walking in looking at your immaturities. I'm walking in and looking at my judgmental spirit. So that's the idea. But then he shifts gears. And he says, now you're going to have to change your view of others. Now, if you thought this first part was intense, Right? I mean, you just might want to start coughing and leave now, because, you know, this is really going to get intense. I've been surprised as we've been going. I'm sorry. I see Brian standing up over there. (laughs) How's that for singling him out, right? You can't judge me for that, brother. (laughs) I've got to change my view of others, and this gets pretty intense here. This gets pretty intense. Notice what he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you, what's the next word? Say it out loud. Must forgive him. Wow. Wow. Is that not the moment when you say, what about, but if, uh, but, uh, how about the word enable? Uh, How about, you know, right? Is this not intense? Let's, what I want to do is I want to just, it's very simple what he says. I'm going to look at all the simple things. We'll just unpack it simply in a second. Then we're going to deal with all the what ifs or a large portion of them, okay? Let's just deal with the simple thing. Three things he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's a simple statement. If you see your brother, so it's somebody in the church doing something wrong, you do need to talk to him. This is not saying, if your brother sins, go and be his support. I just care about you. I'm here for you if you need anything. No, you have to say the words, you're in sin. It's not just being a support group, it's not just saying we're here for you, it's not just that's enabling. Okay, That could be scandalizing, if you think about it. But he's saying this, you go and talk to him. And you know what happens? If he repents, if he says, you're right, I was wrong, then you forgive. You forgive him. And forgiveness, hey, let me give you a, a, a synonym for forgiveness. Forgiveness is the, is the, before I get the synonym, I'll explain it. Forgiveness is the starting point of working things out with people. Right? You know, sometimes you got to work things out. But it always has to be launched from forgiveness. I can't work anything out until I'm forgiven, till I forgive you, till you forgive me. And forgiveness is basically saying this. It is finished. There's a synonym for it. Isn't that what Christ said on the cross? I covered your sins. It is finished. It's done. Sin resolved. So what's forgiveness? Forgiveness is saying... It's finished. Christ covered that. Done. I'm not going to treat you as a sinner at this point. Which means that I'm not going to be cycling through this conversation 57 times with you. It's done. It's finished. Before we reconcile, before we maybe work on things to to make things run more smoothly in our organization, it has to first begin by saying, I am going to forgive you. If I don't forgive you, what happens? And anytime time I work things out, I'm really just coming at you. And that's why we have the same conversation 20 times, 50 times with this person over and over and over again. They haven't forgiven us. They haven't let it go. Forgiveness is saying, Christ covered it. It is done. Forgiveness. So they repent. Repent means I'm turning. I'm done. I don't want this anymore. I, I, I'm after Christ. Forgiveness means it's finished. I'm letting it go. Then he takes it to the third thing. If your brother keeps sinning and repenting, we must keep forgiving, right? If he sins against you seven times. In that culture, that was an idiom, seven times. It meant perfection. So here's how that would translate in our culture. If your brother sins against you a million times a day, that's what that means. You, and he repents a million times a day, you must forgive him. A million times a day. Woo! That's a tough one. Now the first ones were easy, right? Because you went to them, they repent. But what happens if they now... And notice, notice the way that the emphasis shifts. If he sins against you. Now he's coming after you, right? It's an offense against you. It's not just a, a seeing you in sin now. Now he's coming after me. And notice Jesus offers no qualifiers. And he offers this very intense word, Must you must forgive him now how many of you read that and you go I, I okay I can't really fight you Jesus because it's your words but if I were gonna fight you <laughs> I'd have some issues with that statement right right because we could start making excuses and qualifiers and what are we, are we enabling them how do we understand this so Let me take a moment and unpack how to understand this verse. The best way to understand this is right now to stop thinking of the person you're thinking of. Okay? (laughs) You're thinking of someone. I know it. Stop thinking about them. And I want you to think about Jesus for a moment. So don't think about the conflict you're in. Don't think about this person who has sinned against you a million times today. And I want you to think about Jesus. And I want you to think about the worldview of Jesus, the personality of Jesus. I want you to think about what it is about Jesus that you really depend on in your relationship with him. What do you depend on in your relationship with Jesus? That he is a good and gracious and merciful God, right? Don't you depend on that? So you get up tomorrow... And you get in a fight with your boss, and you say some really nasty things, and then you go back <coughs> and you think about it. And you think, wow, that was, I, I, I sinned. And you say, Jesus, boy, give me the courage now to go back and apologize to my boss. And then you go back and you apologize to your boss, and you go home, and then you get angry at your child. Because they left something out, and you kick your toe, and like, ah, oh, you know, ah, oh, you get mad. What is that doing there? I told you every day you got to move that. And then you go, oh, man, you know, I shouldn't have yelled at them. That was wrong. Oh, Jesus, I, I shouldn't have yelled at them. I'm sorry. Right? And then you're working out some details for your life, and your spouse says to you something, and you're like, you never told me that. Yes, I did. You know, blah. Right? And there's your bedtime. And then you lay down on your bed and you go, wow, we shouldn't have fought. Oh, God, I just pray that tomorrow's a better day. Now, in your relationship with Jesus, what did you depend on? That he's kind and compassionate and merciful. And that he's not just smashing you like a bug. Because you sinned against him seven times today. And you know what he does? He says, man, I care about you. I love you i'm not letting you go i know you're made of flesh sometimes when you get your ego gets a little big i'm gonna knock you down because i love you but i'm gonna pull you back up again because you see i am kind i am compassionate i am forgiving so now when you think about that and then you think about the term christian what does the word christian mean it means little christ and we think about what it does mean to be a Christian. It means maturing in Christ. Therefore, when I read this passage, if he sins against you a million times, I should go, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Because you see, I sin against him a million times. I sin against him. And he is so kind with me. I want to be marked with that heart. So don't think about the person right now. Think about your Savior. Think about Christ and say, okay, that's what He's saying. Okay. I spent a long time on that. I'm getting a little overtime here. But are we tracking. You understanding that point? Okay. Now, let's get to some of the issues we have with what Jesus said. Let's get to some of the issues we have with what Jesus said here. Two things He said, right? Someone sins, you got to go to them and 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 we struggle with that some of us don't some of us are really good confronters and others of us are really bad confronters and those of us who are bad confronters we just want to be a support and we just want to encourage because we don't really want to have people hate us because 9 times out of 10 we tell someone sinning they get mad at you and we say i don't want them getting mad at me i don't like that moment when they start yelling at me or they start you know coming at me or they start telling me all the things i've done wrong or whatever that's not a comfortable moment. But here's the thing you got to remember. Their long-term relationship with God is more important than your short-term moment with them. And when you place your short-term moment as more important than their long-term relationship with God, what you are saying is, God, I'm actually more important here than you are, right? So there's the issue. So their, 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 their short-term, your short-term moment with them is needs to fall under their long term. Where they're at with God is more important. We cannot love ourselves more than the kingdom of God. You see, if you love yourself, you won't love the kingdom of God. So this, that's an issue there. We don't forgive. Now, let's take the issue of forgiveness. We've got the issue of confronting. What about the issue of forgiveness? Why is that hard? Why is it that we, as Christ-centered people who depend on the mercy of God, have a hard time dispelling it one word is the reason why i believe justice justice there's something inside of us that wants them to pay for what they've done they have hurt me they've hurt my family they've hurt this they've hurt that they've hurt the community whatever it is and i want justice and i'm not going to forgive until justice is served how can we accept them back into the fold without some kind of justice Right? We're like the older brother. How can this guy take the money, the prodigal son, and squander it on all that depravity, and then come back and have a party? Right? We don't want that. We want justice. So, here's the solution to that. Because you see, what we're doing at that moment is we're seeking personal justice. And when we seek personal justice, we've lost sight of something very big. We've lost sight of divine justice. We've lost sight of divine justice. We talk about having a cross-centered life. You know what a cross-centered life is? It really does believe that Jesus did more than just die for my sins. He justly died. So we're talking about the, the community, the believers. I sin against you. You want me to make it right. You want justice before you're going to forgive me. You're demanding your pound of flesh. And what you're losing sight of at that moment is that pound of flesh was exacted on the cross. And so that low view of cross-centered justice creates a high view of personal-centered justice. And when we hold that personal sense of justice, then we don't forgive. What we have to say is, I believe Christ covered that. He was punished. He's clear before God. And if he's cleared before God, then he has to be cleared before me. That's it. That is what he's saying. I think that's the heart of of the cross. And so this is why I can forgive. Now, is that hard to do? Yeah, of course it is. (laughs) I like to say forgiveness is done in installment payments. I have to learn to forgive. You know, the phrase we use around our house sometimes is, I'm working at forgiving you right now. I just have to kind of work through my flesh for a while. But I got to come back to the cross. And so I have to recognize, if I'm going to confront, I want to confront because I want them to be right with God. And if I'm going to forgive, I have to remember that the cross covered. And I have to be content there. And if I'm not content there, then I've got bigger business with God that I've got to deal with with my own heart. One little caveat, and then we'll finish this up with our last point quickly here. The caveat is this. Obviously, in your flesh, it would be easy to say, great, they have to forgive me, so I'm going to keep doing sins you know, over and over and over again. But the idea is repentance. Repentance means I am no longer going to pursue this, and I'm going after this. And sometimes in the course of repentance, you've got to make things right with someone. You do. And so in the course of repenting, I want to make sure what can I do to restore my relationship with this person. The cross settled me before God, but now I want to restore the relational, the, the, the spatial relationship I have. And so we do have a responsibility within the body for that. Don't want that to get lost here. But there is the forgiving heart. So, a shepherd's heart, forgiving heart. One last point. Sorry. Here, I'll hit this here. Really eat fast here. A faithful heart. Notice the apostles' response. And everyone says amen to this point. The apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. Right? You cannot hear those words and not say, I do not. I can't do that. I mean, when I hear increase our faith, basically the less than paraphrase is, I can't do that. You better enable me to do this. You better give me a lot more faith. Because the faith I have right now... It wants to exact the pound of flesh. The faith I have right now really does want to judge people. The faith I have right now really does look down on a few people. There are a few theological positions out there where I roll my eyes at people. That's my flesh right now. Increase our faith. Notice that Jesus does not say, okay. Notice what he says. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, you don't need more faith. You just need faith. In fact, if faith could be translated into magical power, this is what it would look like. I believe he was standing by a mulberry tree. Mulberry tree is a big tree. Got complex root structures all over the place. You know, I was looking at them on the internet. They're Pretty beautiful trees. And he's saying, you could take this giant 300 year old mulberry tree and if faith were magic you could lift it up and drop it in the middle of the ocean. That's how powerful the smallest amount of faith is. So what he's saying is you have already what you need to do this. Now the question is what is faith? Right? So I just want to make sure that you, un- that you can comprehend what faith is. Let me give you a definition of faith. Faith is the God given understanding desire and ability to believe, trust, and follow Jesus. I'll say it again. Faith is the God-given understanding, desire, and ability to believe, trust, and follow Jesus. It's the God-given understanding, desire, and ability to believe, trust, and follow Jesus. That's faith. We could break it down into very three simple phrases. It means, first, you believe the message. You actually do believe this is true. Faith is that ability to say, I believe what God said is true. So I'm coming with that premise, starting here. Second, it's trusting in the method. Trusting in the method means that when I read what Jesus says here about forgiveness and all this stuff, I don't go, no, that's not right. Ah, now we need to ask yourself, do you have faith? Faith will say, this is impossible, but it's right. I'm going to accept that method. Jesus' method will be my method. And then finally, it's following the messenger. You see, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. That's faith. I believe this is true. I believe the way God said it is true and what he said to do is true. And I want to be like Jesus. If that is your heart, you believe the word of God is true, you believe when you read here in seventeen one through 10, you say, yep, yeah, that's right. And you say in your heart, I want to be like Jesus. Then you have everything you need to do this. You don't need more faith. You just need faith. How will that look? He gives an illustration to show you what it will look like. It will not be a huge, dramatic moment with a big movie score and all this going on in your life. This is what it will look like. Look at the illustration, verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly <clears throat> and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, uh, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, what's this illustration? Simple illustration. You hire somebody to mow your lawn. right? I'll illustrate the illustration. You hire somebody to mow your lawn, and they mow your lawn. It's, I'm going to pay you 20 bucks to mow my lawn. And they mow your lawn. And they walk in there, I've mowed your lawn. This is great. Where's the party? No, I hired you to do it. No, seriously, I did it. No, yeah, but I'm giving you money for it. Yeah, but I kind of thought there'd be a big party. I thought, No. You hire somebody to do something, when they do it, you pay them. Now, why is he giving that? He said, your servant comes in and takes care of sheep. You don't say, oh, you just took care of the sheep. No, that's what I pay you to do. You know what? I not only pay you to take care of the sheep, I pay you to feed me food. And at the end of the day, you can eat. That's the arrangement we set up. Okay. He's saying, when you have faith, the way that you'll know it is that there will just be this thing inside of you to say, God, help me do this. I just want to do it. I'm not worthy. I can't do it. I struggle with it. But I just want to do it. And at the end of the day, when Jesus pulls you home, you're going to say, man, I just, I tried. I'm just, I'm not worthy to even be here. But I just, I just wanted to do it. And Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. See, that's what it's going to look like. It's, it's it, The way that you know it is that you're not going to wake up in the morning and be like, I can love You're going to wake up in the morning saying, I don't know if I can do this. God help me. I don't know if I can do it. And that's how you'll know. And that's the essence of what he's saying. Don't look for big magic moments. Big altar call, spirit showing up on your head, kind of flowery stuff. The way you know if you have faith is that you get up every day saying, I don't know if I can pull this off, but Jesus, help me. I don't know if I can do it, but help me. There's faith. So when I read that story, that's where I find my encouragement, right? I find my encouragement that every day I'm getting up depending on him to get me through it. Not in any flowery way. I don't want to write a book. Love how I mastered it. I want to give every day saying, I struggle with it, but Jesus, I want to do it. I'm unworthy, but I want to do it. Make me a servant. That's the issue. bow your head with me Jesus we have covered a lot of information here but Lord the simple conclusion that we have to have is make us a servant just make us a servant just in our hearts let us just pursue you With a heart of service and dependence. Knowing we're not worthy. We can't do it. Our flesh says increase our faith. Yet God just help us now. Just to, to have a shepherd's heart and a forgiving heart. Driven by faith. Lord I'm grateful for these relationships that we have. Lord there are just so many people that want to get away from the pain. And so they want to just worship on their own. They want to worship in their own rooms. They want to worship just doing this virtually. But what they miss are the conflicts, God. The conflicts where we get to let your gospel shine. So, Lord, help us not to run away when the conflicts come. Help us not to bury ourselves away and come up with excuses. But yet to realize this is a moment when we get to forgive and love and to put the true heart of the gospel on display. The fact that your mercy is new every morning. So Lord, the thing that drives us away from the church, may it now be the thing that drives us towards it. But Lord, keep us from a scandalizing heart. Let us pay attention to ourselves. Make us into loving, forgiving people, Lord. We need your help. May we do it, not with a bang, but with simplicity. with Daily dependence on you. In Christ's name, amen.